Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from a health advocacy group in Washington about school lunch programs. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Clay Gordon presents an in-depth look at the two Democrats running for governor of Ohio and three Democrats running for the U.S. Senate seat being left open by Republican Rob Portman, who chose not to run for re-election. And 10TV's Kevin Landers looks at the problem of catalytic converter thefts in Ohio. In the second half hour, I'll talk with Robert Buck Bramlish, Executive Director of the Franklin County Veterans Service Commission, about how that agency helps local veterans. And I'll speak with a couple of doctors about prediabetes, what it is and how to prevent it. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Jamie Bissell, who is a senior program officer for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. How are you? Hi, good morning, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is. Uh, Sure. So the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, we are the largest philanthropy in the nation, devoted exclusively to improving health and health care for all who live in this country. We have a bold, ambitious vision of building a culture of health. And for us, that means everybody, no matter who you are, where you live, has a fair and just opportunity to live the healthiest, best life possible. And one of the issues that uh, you folks are tackling and, and drawing awareness to has to do with food availability for kids in school. You Exactly. So um, healthy school meals, as you just said, key to improving health, ending child hunger, and doing a whole lot more. So we are absolutely out there um, advocating for um, continuation of universal school meals, which has been a provision that has been shepherded through by Congress um, and the USDA that has enabled schools and child care centers in the U.S. Um, to have some really important flexibilities over the time of the pandemic um, to be able to serve meals when, where, and how they determine is best. Um, and it's, um, again, ensured that children, you know, all kids um, can participate for free in the school lunch program. Um, and again, this has been a critically important uh, provision, and we are calling upon Congress to um, not let this really important provision expire, which it is set to do at the end of the school year, um, which would really leave millions of kids and families and schools in the lurch. If this does expire, does it uh, have any impact on summer programs? That's a Great point, Dave. Absolutely. So um, this is, you know, not just about the school year. This is absolutely about summer as well. And we know that um, summer can be a particularly precarious time for kids and families in terms of being able to ensure consistency of high quality, um, nutritious meals. So this will have incredibly significant um, impact uh, if it's not extended, and it will certainly impact um, ability of schools to provide meals during the summer, which, again, is a really important um, time to do that. So, um, you know, we're, we're saying that, you know, more than 3 million children have actually fallen back into poverty this year. Food insecurity rates are continuing to rise. Um, and it's going to take years for schools to recover and families to recover financially from the pandemic. And so we believe so strongly that all families should continue to have the peace of mind that comes with healthy meals being available at no charge. 
this is a, you know, a proven and effective strategy to improve kids' health and well-being and learning, um, to decrease food insecurity, to improve diet quality. And um, yeah, so the, um, I think the benefits are huge and we're imploring Congress and our policymakers to do the right thing and really extend these waivers at least through the next school year. A lot of school districts are reporting that they're having trouble uh, maintaining their supply chain to provide lunches for students. Uh, Are you seeing that nationally? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that, um, you know, schools are have been hit financially um, due to, you know, um, everything that's happened as a consequence of COVID in terms of supply chain, in terms of staffing challenges. And so it's ever more important that we're doing everything that we can to support support school districts so that they can continue um, to benefit financially, you know, from revenues from federal reimbursement for meals. And so this is absolutely um, an issue that schools are struggling with. In fact, I believe the latest data is that, you know, it's upwards of $2 billion in loss of federal revenue um, between March and November of the first, you know, full year of the pandemic back in 2020. And so it's going to take years for schools to recover financially. And even with with waivers, um, again, you know, school food service departments have suffered um, pretty dramatically. And so um, things like universal school meals and, you know, increasing um, increasing the, excuse me, the revenue for federal reimbursements goes very far in terms of supporting school meals and particularly school nutrition departments. Talking with Jamie Bissell, a senior program officer with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Now, because even in this last school year, uh, the current school year, there were still occasionally virtual learning from home when there were outbreaks and such. So has that helped the funding extend? Or, I mean, do these programs continue on days when kids are learning virtually? Yeah, you bet, Dave. So that's what's been so critically powerful around some of these critical flexibilities that Congress has enabled schools um, to um, to pursue. And so, again, it's allowed schools to um, really determine the when, the where, the how meals could be served. And so providing some really important flexibilities when, you know, school closures were taking place. Um, and so, Again, you know, Congress not only has extended those important flexibilities that have made it easier for schools to continue to feed kids and families, but also ensured that funds were available so that all kids could be receiving these meals free of charge. Um, across the nation, regardless of family income level. So the waivers or, you know, the flexibilities have been incredibly important in ensuring that um, tens of millions of kids and families um, have have school meals and, and have enough to eat. So if the program is not extended, does it revert back to what it was before the pandemic? Exactly. So, um, you know, and just to give a sense, like there are 30 million students who participate in the National School Lunch Program, about 15 million in school breakfast. Um, Children are, you know, getting half their daily calories at school. And for many kids, this is the only consistent source of nutritious meals. And by making 
school meals universal. It takes away a lot of the headache around certification, paperwork um, that's really onerous for schools. And it just enables things to be much more efficient and easier on both schools and families. And that it's an important way to ensure that, um, you know, millions of kids and families that rely on these school meals will continue to be able to do that. Um, and really, again, have the peace of mind that comes with healthy meals being available at no charge. Jamie, if people want more information about this, where do they find out? Sure. Well, they can go to um, a really robust website at FRAC, which is the Food Research and Action Center, um, or rwjf.org. Um, and in addition, um, we have a wealth of resources and supports on our State of Childhood Obesity website, which is stateofchildhoodobesity.org. So there's a ton of information and resources for people out there who are interested in learning more um, about what's happening in this really important space. Jamie Bissell, Senior Program Officer, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Thanks so much for the information today. You bet. Thank you. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Clay Gordon from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. And thanks for joining us on Face the State. I'm Clay Gordon in for Tracy Townsend. Those hoping to win your vote come May 3rd. Face off in a series of debates at Central State University. We have team coverage of those debates Starting with 10TV's Kevin Landers, coverage of the Democrats hoping to take Governor Mike DeWine's job. John Cranley and Nan Whaley share similar platforms, and it was clear during Tuesday's debate. The State House has been called by the FBI the most corrupt in the country. From corruption regarding House Bill 6. I will fire the public utility commissioners that Mike DeWine appointed that gave us that bill. To attacking Governor DeWine's record on gun control. Never in my worst nightmare. Did I think that the thing he was going to do was to actually make it worse? Mike DeWine did make it worse. Signing that outrageous bill, as well as Stand Your Ground, is a stain on his soul. One area they do disagree is Cranley's plan to use revenue from legalized marijuana to grow thousands of jobs in the state and to rebuild the state's roads and fund public education. Oh, nobody believes that but Mayor Cranley. Like every study, I mean, every study has shown that just doesn't work. Cranley says if elected, he would change the statute of limitations on rape to reduce abuse in the state. Whaley agreed. Both candidates are pro-choice, but Whaley says if elected. I'll make sure that we have a pro-choice doctor as a head of public health in our cabinet. Whaley dodged the question if she would reduce the state's gas tax. Cranley didn't. Absolutely. Uh, Teresa and I would immediately temporarily reduce the gas tax. When asked about DeWine's victory of bringing intel to Ohio, both agreed it was great, but wondered how the entire state would benefit. The day that intel was announced, every, every leader in every single region texted me or called me and said, where's Cleveland's intel? Where's Toledo's intel? My plan is to grow the state from 
the ground up to make sure that each major city has jobs. Both candidates were asked about ending qualified immunity, which protects police accused of violating a person's constitutional rights. Whaley dodged the question. Cranley was clear. So, Mr. Cranley, would you sign an executive order ending qualified immunity? No. Now, after the debate, Kevin Landers was able to ask each candidate questions. First, I think a lot of people look both at you and John and find you have very similar platforms. How do you differentiate yourself from John? And number two, what do you believe most resonates with voters? Corruption of the state house, in which you're highly involved in, in terms of trying to fix it. I'm not involved. I'm in terms of trying to fix it. Thank you. To fix it. Thank you. And, and in, in, in some, which do you believe resonates more with them? The fact that Governor DeWine and brought in South Ohio, or you think corruption resonates more with them? Well, I mean, it's very clear, see, because you're from the Columbus Metro, and, like, Columbus Metro gets everything. The day that Intel was announced, every, every leader in every single region texted me or called me and said, where's Cleveland's Intel? Where's Toledo's Intel? And actually, on the same week that Intel was announced, they actually announced they were pulling down 2,000 jobs in Toledo with the Peloton manufacturing plant that Governor Mike DeWine had already snipped the ribbon on. Right? So there's a couple of things around the Intel piece we need to make sure. We are investing $2 billion as a state in that. We need to make sure they keep their promises because what we've noticed with these, this leadership at the state house is they're all there for the ribbon cutting, but when the rubber meets the road, the good-paying jobs a lot of times don't follow. And secondly, we've only seen one metro really see this growth from the state house. So, you know, there are issues around this, I think, for the rest of the state. And secondly, yes, I don't think anybody is pleased that we live in the most corrupt state in the state house with the most corrupt state house in the country, according to the FBI, because what we're seeing is we're paying for that every single month. And as you look at the median income of the state, of people's middle income, and how hard it is to try to get to work, to figure out child care, to figure out the costs, they see a state house and a governor that really doesn't care. They're only interested in special interest and people that are lining their pockets. And I think both of them are really important in this race, frankly. And how do you think you differentiate yourself? Oh, sorry about that. Well, I do look a little different, right? Uh, secondly, look, I'm the only candidate in this race, Democrat or Republican, that has been pro-choice my entire career. And that's an important issue, particularly when Roe v. Wade is likely to fall this spring, that the governor is going to be the last stop to make sure that women have access to health care rights and their decisions and that there's access to abortion in the state. And the governor has a lot of say in that. Uh, so I think that's really important. And finally, I'm the only candidate, I think, well, me and Joe Blystone, who are not millionaires. I don't know if Joe's a millionaire, but everyone else in this race is. And look, I think we need to have people that work and are from the working class really fighting for working class folks because people have lost their way and politics has gotten, have gotten out of reach for regular folks. Uh, I think that's really important, too. What do you think resonates more with voters? Your platform or meeting out describes corruption in the state house or government lines that you're bringing Intel to Well, look, we're all happy that Intel's coming. But what about Youngstown? What about Toledo? What about Dayton? What about Springfield? What about Appalachia? What about Athens? What about Chillicothe? Where's their corporate welfare? You know, eventually you run out of other people's money, which the Republicans used to say. One strategy is to just pay a large amount of money to bring companies to Ohio. My plan is to grow the state from the ground up, to make sure that each major city has jobs, has the infrastructure they need so that you can live in Columbiana County, not have to live in a big city, but you have to have high-speed broadband to function in today's 
economy. You can live in Appalachia. There are parts of Appalachia that don't have running water. We're going to have clean energy investments across the state. The quality of life near Lake Erie depends on getting rid of the algae blooms. We're going to invest in clean water projects to get rid of the algae blooms. Investing in clean energy in people and instead of driving young people away with stand your ground and, you know, he's been a longtime supporter of banning gay marriage. I'm in favor of it. Uh, He passed a law that says government can stop farmers from doing wind and solar projects. He tells farmers they can't grow marijuana. He thinks it should be a crime. I think it should be a business. I'm on the side of freedom and Mike DeWine's on the side of crony capitalism. HB6 is just the greatest example. But there's so many other examples. And while I'm happy Intel's here, it can't be replicated because we're out of money. And so the only resource we have is not an infinite amount of money. It's the people of Ohio. And investing in valuing diversity and inclusion, investing in education and clean energy and infrastructure, that's how you build a state. Kevin Landers reporting there. It's important to note that the Republicans running in the gubernatorial race did not debate. The four candidates were invited, though. But Governor DeWine backed out, then the other Republicans followed suit. We asked Governor DeWine rather, why he did not debate. We've held more press conferences than any governor in the history of the state ever held. Uh, I'm available today. I'm available, uh, you know, every single week, once, twice, sometimes three times. So uh, there's no lack of understanding about what my, posi- what my positions are. So... That's that's you know, we will also be having joint appearances. Um, You know, we'll be having joint editorial boards where we will all be there. Uh, People will have the opportunity to, I assume, watch that on a video feed. So there's going to be opportunities for people to compare and contrast where where we stand. And there certainly are. Our differences. Senator Rob Portman's U.S. Senate seat is also up for grabs. There's a long list of people vying for your vote. Here's a look at the Democratic candidates. Anchor Tracy Townsend has a topic they tackled at Central State University. A quick note about the Democrats running for the U.S. Senate. You'll hear in order candidates Tim Ryan, Morgan Harper, and Tracy Johnson. The debate for the three Democrats in this primary was not just an opportunity to face off, but an opportunity to stand out. They tackled everything from the war in Ukraine, how much you pay for gas at the pump, and because we are here at Central State University, they talked about student loan relief. We have done a good job of getting the Ukraine some of the armaments that they need to push back. Look, Putin is a butcher. He's a killer. He's a war criminal. And he is slaughtering innocent people. And I think we actually need to do more. Harper was quick to claim her competition may make decisions based on money with a claim that he's taken $400,000 in corporate campaign backing. But we also have to keep in mind about what we've been through over the last 20 years as a country, where we have seen a lot of military intervention that perhaps moved too quickly without always having the full information. And I want to be clear headed. The debate offered a view of the candidates' positions on close to home issues, ranging from student loan relief and the economy all the way to the environment and gun violence. Our communities are, especially the African uh, African American communities, have a ton of guns that are just available for homicides, robberies, and accidental discharge. We have to make sure that these guns are off the street 
Yes, I, again, supported in the House of Representatives uh, background che- universal background checks, closing, closing the Charleston loophole, closing the gun show loophole. I think it's critical. We see what's happening on our streets. Everybody should feel safe in the community that they live in. We need to ensure that we, yes, are implementing strong federal protection like universal background checks, preventing people from having access to weapons who aren't in a position to manage them effectively, but then also and importantly addressing the root causes of violence. Things like the fact that people don't have enough money. Three diverse points of view, all three hoping to prove they are worthy of winning a spot on that November ballot. From Wilberforce, Ohio at Central State University, Tracy Townsend, 10TV News. Candidates are paying big money for ads on television. Brandon Lewis from our National Verify team looks into whether politicians can lie in those ads. Primary election season is coming, and that means there will be political ads everywhere you look. And some of those ads will inevitably make outlandish claims. Some Verify viewers emailed us to ask if candidate ads have to tell the truth. So let's verify. Are political ads required to be factual in order to be aired on broadcast television? Our sources are the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, and University of Minnesota political science professor David Schultz. The rules for political ads are very different than typical consumer products. And we want to be clear up front that the answer to this question is no. Political ads are not required to be factual in order to be aired on broadcast television. In fact, the law allows politicians to say almost whatever they want in a commercial. This is because political ads are regulated by the FCC, which applies just two rules. One is that all candidates have the same opportunity to buy commercial time on stations. And two is that politicians can say whatever they want. Accuracy is not one of the rules. Although TV stations could run a disclaimer explaining the rules before airing an ad. The only consequence for politicians who produce misleading or false ads is in court. And that's only if they defame someone, which is rare and hard to prove. I think the rationale behind it is what? The idea of saying that candidates get to say what they want and what? The voters get to sort of, through the marketplace of ideas, decide what's true, what's false. That marketplace could also include news stories or fact checks like Verify stories explaining what's true and false. Schultz says you should always read the fine print on an ad to see who is funding it and do your own research on a candidate to see if what's being claimed is really true. With your Verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. And do you have something you want our Verify team to look into? Email us at verify at 10tv.com. You can vote for the May 3rd primary, but not all the races will be on the ballot. What's happening now to prepare and what worries election leaders have about holding a second primary? Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. People do some pretty cool things in their 40s and 50s. Why should saving for retirement be any different? I mean, they go back to college, learn new instruments, start skateboarding. Whoa! 
Okay, maybe that one's not for everybody, but saving for retirement is. With aceyourretirement.org, you can get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. Just have a three-minute chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach from AARP. You'll get personalized recommendations based on your input that are easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Gnarly move, Dad. Thanks, sweetie. So wherever you are in your retirement savings journey, head to aceyourretirement.org and start chatting with Avo today. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias. I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day. You're not the right fit for this job. Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me. I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor. Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. Early voting for the May 3rd primary. The ballots look a little different because of the ongoing controversy over new redistricting maps. 10TV's Kiana Deitches shows us what's going on to get ready. Everything in the machine room has been tested and cleared. Inside the Franklin County Board of Elections office, signs in place, machines ready, and stickers sorted for the May 3rd primary and for early voting. On the May 3rd ballot, voters can expect to see the gubernatorial race, U.S. Senate races, local races, and the congressional primary. Now things left off the ballot will shake things up. What voters won't see this time around, contests for Ohio House and Senate seats. As the redistricting battle continues, a second primary with those races is not off the table. But Seller says having a second primary would cause some issues. Uh, there's obviously a cost involved in running a second primary. Um, statewide, the numbers uh, I'm hearing are $20 million to run an additional primary. He says they'd also have to find more help. We're going to have to, to get more of those poll workers to, to work a second election. As well as places to vote. We are in about 320 voting locations throughout the county. Uh, we're in about a third of our locations are in schools. Uh, we're in churches. Uh, a lot of those, a lot of things they do in the summer, uh, repairs, uh, renovations, um, churches have camps. No matter what, this team is up for the challenge. We take an oath where we're, this is our profession. Um, we will certainly pull this off. Kiana Digest, 10 TV News. A federal court panel decided not to delay the election at this time, but that panel has reserved the right to intervene if the redistricting battle isn't settled by April 20th. Black Ohio State leaders discussed the redistricting issue during an event. Members of the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity gathered at the state capitol to highlight issues black Ohioans face every day. That's why Dayton Representative Willis E. Blackshear Jr. is pushing for voting rights. These aren't Democrat or Republican issues. These are everyday life issues. And it's important that we have elected leaders in office who are advocating on our behalf to move our communities forward. 
As a fraternity, we will keep our eye out on some of the pieces of legislation that deals with voting, and we will also continue to monitor the redistricting process. We want voting to be as free and as, as, as accessible as possible, and we want districts that truly represent our communities. There is too much at stake, and it is important that we continue to be civically engaged and encourage others to be civically engaged as well. A bill that would ban certain teaching concepts is causing controversy here in Ohio. House Bill 327 would ban teaching topics like sexuality, gender identity, and racism. It's still in committee and it has not been voted on. Stonewall Columbus calls the legislation dangerous. In this particular moment, the, what we are doing is we are working closely with our local community partners to ensure um, that they are focused on appropriate messaging, uh, that we understand that uh, House Bill 327 um, is a direct attack against LGBTQ identities uh, as we add, as they've added language around transgender uh, uh, young people and, and transgender identities. Supporters argue this is not about sexuality and it's about topics that are inappropriate in school. Schools that break the rules would have funding withheld. Catalytic converter thefts are on the rise, especially in Ohio. We look at a loophole in the law that detectives say allows this type of crime to continue. The future depends on teachers. Every day, teachers are shaping our tomorrows, starting their students on journeys that will change the course of history. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who will make preventing pandemics their life's work sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who will help combat climate change and generating possibilities for a student who will be the first in their family to graduate college. It all starts with teachers who meet challenges with creativity, who reinvent education for the future, who work towards a school system that lifts up every child, regardless of race, income, or zip code, and who enable the full potential of our students, our communities, and our country. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Shape the future. Teach. Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. There's a child in Kenya, or Sierra Leone, or India, or Bolivia, who you could connect with. And through Child Fund, it's possible. We may be thousands of miles apart, but we can still connect with each other. And when we do, we make things better. We connect children all around the world with what they need to grow up healthy, educated, and safe. That's what Child Fund is about. Together, we co-create, support, and sustain connections that lead to greater well-being for millions of children who live in poverty worldwide, in their families, in their communities, in their countries, and you. Join us. Together, we can make the world a better place. Two small worlds at a time, his and yours. Visit childfund.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. A warning from police. If you park your car or business truck outside, thieves are sliding underneath and sawing off an expensive part of your vehicle. Reporter Kevin Landers explains how a major bust in Franklin County may help slow down the thefts of catalytic converters. But detectives say unless lawmakers fix a loophole in Ohio law, the crimes will continue. They hit these a lot because they're up high 
off the ground. They can get under real quick and get out. Susan White is talking about her fleet of employee transport vans. This side you can probably see better. She showed us where thieves crawled under one of her vans and sawed off the catalytic converter, which is part of the truck's exhaust system. We've had six of them gone. Six vans, six catalytic converters. Inside a converter are precious metals like platinum, rhodium, and palladium, some worth more than gold. Today, the catalytic converters under White's fleet are protected with a steel cage to prevent thieves from taking them. They weren't cheap to replace. It's about $1,500 per vehicle. Groveport Police Detective Josh Gilbert tied the catalytic converter thefts of Susan White's vans to 15 others throughout the city of Groveport. All of them, he says, were at the hands of this man, 41-year-old Tommy Cox of Columbus, a father of five and a grandfather. Basically, Mr. Cox was paying individuals to go cut catalytic converters as well as cutting them himself. Before his arrest, police say Cox was the leader of a catalytic converter theft ring that spanned five counties, and he was able to find his victims using a $30 piece of technology that's used to find your car keys. So this is a, a simple Apple AirTag. Detective Gilbert says Cox would place the tracking device under someone's car and wait for them to park. We found this one in Muskingum County. Okay, it was underneath a vehicle that was cut. The converter was missing. Cox lived in this South Columbus home. It's heavily surrounded with surveillance cameras. Police say he used them to help escape capture at least once. When SWAT did catch him and his girlfriend, Shannon Vance, they found guns, a credit card-making machine, along with catalytic converters. Police connected Cox to more than a 1,000 of them. But how could he sell so many? Ohio law only allows one person to sell one catalytic converter per day per scrapyard. Apparently, he found this loophole. He's one of the first ones that we've come across that have found this loophole. That loophole allows anyone who forms a business with the Secretary of State's office to sell as many catalytic converters as they want. And it doesn't require people to prove ownership, which may explain why Ohio ranks number eight in the country for the most catalytic converter thefts. This does affect everybody because it drives up insurance rates and things of that nature. So in a sense, everybody's a victim. So what's being done to stop the thefts? I've had a about eight to ten of these catalytic converters stolen from a property that I own. State Representative Bob Young introduced a bill in September of last year to make it harder for crooks to sell bundles of catalytic converters. If the scrap metal dealers, frankly, were policing themselves, they wouldn't be looking at additional regulations. Young says his bill would close the scrap metal loophole. The biggest thing the bill is going to do is require that scrap metal dealer to show proof of ownership for every single catalytic converter that they're purchasing. Detective Gilbert says the law could be better by eliminating cash payments to scrappers. As for Tommy Cox, he's sitting behind bars with 32 felony counts and a bond of $4 million. He got a higher bond than most murderers. As for people like Susan White, she has a message for those who park outside. For what we've spent, you need to have them in a secure place where people can't get in. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. So what can you do to protect your car if you can't park in a garage? Well, we have tips from the International Auto Theft Investigators. They say engravers, specialized metal labels, and high-temperature exhaust spray paint can help deter thieves. Lastly, make sure you have comprehensive insurance to protect your car in case of theft. Voters have had the opportunity to vote on this in November, but first, the Ohio House and Senate must approve the measure. Well, thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. I'm Clay Gordon. Catch Face the State with Tracy Townsend 
every Sunday morning. And remember, if it affects you and your family in Ohio, we are here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Clay Gordon, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. On the phone with me is Robert Buck Bramlish. He's the executive director of the Franklin County Veterans Service Commission. How are you? Uh, good morning, Dave, and thanks for having me, and I'm terrific. Thanks. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, I wanted to ask you first, right off the bat, about the Franklin County Veterans Service Commission. What is that? The Veterans Service Commission uh, in Franklin County is a county agency that um, came into being after the Civil War. You know, it was the local Ohioans that said, we want to take care of our, our Ohio widows and orphans and veterans. And so right after the Civil War, they, they came up with this, uh, this concept and it's been codified in the law, and now every county, all 88 counties, have a Veterans Service Commission at the county level whose job is to support veterans. And you've been leading Franklin counties since 2016, and uh, I have to mention about your uh, stellar career in the military. Can you uh, touch on that just a little bit? Well, um, yeah, you know, whenever someone says stellar, you got to take a deep breath. <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a great career. I was very, uh, very fortunate. I served with some great folks. Um, I was in the Army, Army National Guard for uh, three, four years, um, retired as a colonel. Um, you know, uh, I, I tell people that, you know, the, the military, I, I earned college degrees, uh, some of my best friends, um, but it was a chance to serve and understand um, our great country. You know, see our great country, serve our great country, um, you know, something a little bit bigger than, than yourself, and I was, I, that, that kind of kind of formed who I was. You know, I was 17 when I signed up, so... Uh, our job is to do what the government asked us to do, and, and we always feel that that's, that's chasing down freedom or trying to support freedom and uh, trying to protect freedom. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for me, I was, I was glad to make that part of my life's calling. That's uh, outstanding. And, and what about veterans in Franklin County? How many are there? In Franklin County, we've got about 67,000 veterans. In fact, there's over 700,000 veterans in Ohio, which makes Ohio... I think the sixth or seventh largest veteran state, so a very patriotic uh, state. We, we, we estimate that about 5,000 of the veterans uh, that are in our county um, are living at or below the, the poverty level, and another 13,000 or so um, uh, receive some kind of VA um, uh, compensation-type support. Um, so we have veterans that certainly are struggling. When you look at wartime service, you know, it, it's always a demographic shift. You know, the greatest generation, the Korean conflict, and they might make up uh, anywhere between you know three and four percent of a veteran population now. The Vietnam era um, veterans make up about thirty percent. The this drawn out Gulf War, you know, very long war, it makes up probably another thirty percent um, uh, you know, of the population. And the last uh, at least about thirty percent, if I did my public math right, and uh, um, and that's that's our peacetime that spent their time training and preparing to, to, to respond as called. And so um, a, a big group of veterans in our county. The, the way we help, Dave, is we've got these two core competencies, and it's financial assistance generates some kind of emergency um, when a veteran and or their family is struggling. They maybe lost a job, they have a sick uh, spouse and the income went down, um, uh, or they have a sick spouse or child and, and, and their need just went up. Um, all kinds of things that, that might cause um, a veteran to be struggling financially. We have a we have a program 
uh, that's for that. And, I, and I'd like to tell you some of the things that we do with that. Absolutely. Uh, talking with uh, Buck Bramley, she's executive director, Franklin County Veterans Service Commission. Go ahead. You know, let's start with just we're all reading so much about rent uh, and mortgage challenges right now. So, so in 2020, you know, the COVID, you know, the, the first part of the COVID year, um, we provided almost 600 uh, veterans with rent mortgage support, so homelessness prevention. Um, you go back the year before 2019, that was over 1,100 to the tune of over a million dollars in support. Trying to keep our veterans housed that are, that are going through these struggles. Um, food vouchers is another thing that, we, you know, the nutrition requirement is so important to quality of life. So when these, we have veterans that have hit that bump or have been in that bump for a while uh, on the road, um, and last year alone, especially when the, you know, everyone panicked and the shelves were being, you know, were, were clear, um, we provided over 3,000 food vouchers to support uh, veteran and veteran families, and, and, and it was over $750,000 worth of food cards. A lot of times it's like on Aldi, so it allows them to go uh, to go get food uh, um, fresh from a market somewhere. Um, so, uh, you know, another thing we do is utilities. Uh, in 2020, about 350 um, veterans we supported with utility challenges that couldn't pay their utilities. 2019, that was over 700. So, so when you think about emergency support, it's all these kinds of things to keep our veterans in a home uh, or in housing, fed, uh, keep their gas and their electric on, maybe keep their car running if they're trying to go to work, um, to try to support them. And, and many times, Dave, these, um, we help for a month or two, and that's, that's it. You know, they get through the tough bump in the road. Sometimes, though, they're, they're, it, it takes much more than that. And that's when we feel our job is to just provide the emergency support. And when we refer to our great partners, who really are trying to solve problems. So we might pay the rent for a couple of months while they're working with office on, uh, on aging or um, Ohio meets jobs to get a better job or get employed again, or jobs and family services. Um, we work with Lutheran Social Services, St. Vincent DePaul, all these different organizations that help provide, provide solutions while we, while we kind of just take care of the immediate need. So, so that's our, um, uh, that's the gist of our financial assistance uh, program but they, that's financial assistance. We do do one other thing, and it's it's uh, it's uh, service work and uh, support trying to get um, veterans benefits most commonly through the um, Veterans Administration. If I could just explain that for a second. Sure, go ahead. So um, a lot of our veterans, um, they, they come back and they have issues and challenges. And some of them, they have those issues and challenges right away. And, and the VA has a program where you can apply for benefits. It can be complicated, and sometimes it could be three or four months long, and sometimes it could be five or six years long. And so what we do is we have tra nationally trained, state-accredited, nationally-accredited um, service officers who will help the veterans file, chase down records, um, work through the, the, the results from the VA's um, review of those records. If it goes to appeal, we'll support them through the appeal process, no matter how long it takes. Um, as they try to seek these benefits. Some of these benefits, you know, are monetary benefits for illnesses, injuries. Um, doesn't have to be something as a result of war. It's, it's, it's a result of being a, a service member. And then other folks, they have aches and pains that, that they had from service, but, you know, they just lived with it for 20 or 25 years. Uh, and some of, there may be people out there who have parents that are in this, this uh, situation or maybe in a situation themselves. And all of a sudden, those aches and pains, you know, from that, from that, that leg they broke or that, that tendon they tore in the military, 
now they're they're 55 or 65 or 70, and it's it's, it's really prohibitive in their quality of life. Those are also things that we can seek VA support for, um, and so. Um, we want to get the word out, not only to the veteran, but if you're a family member of a veteran, um, if you're a co-worker of a veteran, you know, number one, if they are in some kind of financial challenge, send them to us. Number two, if, if you know they have some kind of physical ailment, um, uh, you could at least mention to them, um, hey, that by chance start in the service, you know, and, and mention our agency um, so that, uh, that those veterans can call us. We'll set up an appointment. And we'll go through the entire process with them and try to support them um, uh, as they try to apply for um, veterans' benefits. That's tremendous. Uh, talking with Buck Bramlish, he's the executive director of the Franklin County Veterans Service Commission. You know, it, it's so interesting that the safety nets are vast and, and greatly in need for veterans, and not just uh, governmentally, through volunteers. And, you know, the honor flights have started back up. Uh, just good stuff. That's a great point, and, and I just want to give a, a nod out to my staff. My staff actually donated money and, and, and supported one of those that were on the honor flight. So, so we're, we're proud to be part of that. But, you, you know, you're right. I always hesitate to mention because I can't mention them all. But, you know, it, it may be Volunteers of America. It may be State Vincent to Paul. It might be Faith Mission. It might be, you know, one of the partners I mentioned earlier. There's a lot of work to help not only just our citizens in Franklin County, but there are programs that are also that they facilitate that, that are specifically you know, to support veterans. Our goal at the Veterans Service Commission in Franklin County is to provide the immediate support they need. And if they need, if they have underlying issues, if they have long-term issues, we refer them to those kinds of organizations. Because we want, in the end, we want them toward a, a better quality of life. I want to mention, you know, the, really kind of the last thing I want to make sure I always mention is, you know, you hear in the news about, about um, veteran suicide. And that number is always, unfortunately, you know, lately been ticking around 20 a day. 20 a day veterans that we're, that we're losing uh, to take their life. And it's, it's heartbreaking. And I just want to mention, you know, there are all kinds of hotlines, but the one we will refer is, is the, uh, um, you know, the Veterans uh, Crisis Hotline. And I want to give that phone number out real quick here. And that, that phone number is 800-273-8255. And I'll say it again, 800-273-8255. 't to, to give again uh, the link where on the website where folks can uh, access some of this help but first I did want to mention that the National Veterans Memorial and Museum what a great venue and we really haven't even seen you know that brand new facility hasn't even really seen a non-pandemic era to be appreciated yet so there's some great things coming with that I'm smiling I boy if I didn't do a a plus job the general would get me that that, that, uh, that runs that Tim uh, Ferry who runs the
and yeah, let's get this pandemic out of here. You know, let's keep our, you know, let's keep our hope up. And uh, that's a great place for, for people to visit. And I, and I know they're open for business. Yeah, I'd love to give our contact information. Uh, I'll give our phone number and then our website. We are we are still setting appointments, and really, it's worked out better for us. You know, we like a lot of social type service organizations. Sometimes, man, our lobby would get just packed, and it was a tough. Uh, a tough environment, we're setting appointments now. You know, we've learned through the pandemic some ways to, to, to do things. And so um, call us or go to our website to fill out an application, and we will call you. Um, and, and, you know, I'll give you numbers. In 2019, we, we served 5,200 unique veterans uh, over 22,000 times. So, so it's pretty, pretty busy. So wow. um, that phone number is 614-525-525. 2500 614-525-2500 or our website is vets v-e-t-s dot franklin county ohio all together all one word dot gov so it's vet franklin county ohio dot gov how'd i do that's outstanding. Very clear. Talking with Buck Bramlish. He's the executive director of the Franklin County Veterans Service Commission. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, just just thank you. Thank you for the time. You know, it's, it's very kind the way this community reaches out um, to everybody uh, in need and, and just the appreciation that, that I see from the, the, the community. I was at a, a, a Dublin South High School with a, a veterans event that just literally knocked my thoughts off it was it was just amazing we live in a great community here and so you know thanks for the recognition and, and thanks for the time to talk about uh, our agency and what we try to do buck thanks so much for the information very helpful you're welcome thank you before i was adopted i felt like nobody wanted me i felt like my life was already over at a certain age they don't want you you're troubled and stuff even if i wanted to be adopted who would adopt a 17 year old Inside, I knew, like, I'm not a troubled kid. I know what I'm in for, why I'm here. My biggest fear was that I would age out and not know how to be sufficient on my own. I had nightmares every single day at my birth mom's house. It was just really scary for me living there. I was scared. I was lost, and I felt hopeless. I felt like, don't I deserve to feel happy and loved? I just wish I'd gotten adopted sooner. Unfortunately, the number of children waiting to be adopted from foster care is on the rise. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is the only public nonprofit charity in the U.S. focused exclusively on foster care adoption. You can help. Go to DaveThomasFoundation.org to learn more. There's a place to share the joy of your team winning it all. And a place to share a laugh about skiing and taking a fall. There's a place to share photos of pets or singing in the choir. Or the time you ate a pepper and your mouth was on fire. But we could all be better at sharing how we're feeling inside. 76% of employees have struggled with at least one issue that affected their mental health. When you share, you're not alone. Ask about your company's emotional health benefits. Visit heart.org slash sharing. Brought to you by the American Heart Association. When I grew up, I want to be a doctor because that's a really important job. I would help kids get better and make everything super fun. I'd have a cool waiting room with games, toys, and a huge TV. If your child is sick over and over again, it could be PI, a serious defect of the immune system. Early testing gives children a chance to dream. And I'll give every kid a cherry lollipop because that's the best flavor. 
flavor. Jeffrey Modell Foundation, helping children reach for their dreams. Visit info4pi.org. Unused prescription opioid pain medicines can spell trouble. Safely dispose of opioids before they can hurt your family. Find a drug take-back option such as medicine drop boxes. Visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone is Dr. Christopher Holliday, Director of the CDC's Division of Diabetes Translation, and Dr. Gerald Harmon, who is the President of the American Medical Association. How are you? Doing well. Good morning. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, You are uh, talking to us today because you're rolling out a campaign about prediabetes. Can you talk about that? Yes, Dave. Uh, The CDC, the AMA, and the Ad Council are launching new public service announcements as part of our Do I Have Prediabetes campaign. And these PSAs are designed simply to help people learn their risk for prediabetes. And Dr. Harmon, uh, tell us what prediabetes is. Prediabetes is a condition where the body has higher than normal blood sugar levels. The glucose in your blood is higher than it should be, but it's not quite to the threshold that we would diagnose you with diabetes, in this case type 2 diabetes. One of the troubling things about this is that many people have it and don't know it, and there are no symptoms early on. Yes, there actually are no real symptomatic um, things that people can identify, but the fact that it is so common, one in three American adults has prediabetes, that's roughly 88 million adults, and as was mentioned, 84% of them don't know they have it. And the, the message is really that prediabetes is a serious health condition, and it also puts people at, at high risk for other serious health conditions like heart attack, stroke, and type 2 diabetes. Dr. Harmon, you know, we hear uh, stories about how if you just lose like 5% of your body weight, you're already well on the way to avoiding this type of thing. This is what's so important about this campaign. There are very few things in my practice as a doctor that I can reverse or things I, I can sew up a wound or I can help a broken bone and mend that. But very few systemic diseases like diabetes can be prevented. And prediabetes can be reversed. And so there's such an opportunity here that you're exactly right. We can take relatively simple measures such as eating in moderation, becoming more physically active, and we can stop and reverse and undo this prediabetes condition. You, you talked about no symptoms, but the risk factors are being a little overweight, sedentary lifestyle, having a parent or a sibling with the diagnosis of diabetes, if you've been pregnant, having gestational diabetes, or just being simply 40 or over. So there, it's important to take a, a, an online test uh, that's available from the CDC, the AMA, and the Ad Council uh, called 2IHavePreDiabetes.org. Go online, take that simple uh, less than one minute online test, and if you have uh, positive findings, talk the, the results to your doctor and consider getting a simple blood test. So, Dr. Harmon, uh, if you have somebody in your family who is diabetic, your risk is higher. Is that because it's hereditary, or is it because you're likely to have the same similar lifestyle that might lead to it, or what? Well, both. True, true related, Dave. That's exactly right. There is uh, clearly a familial tendency for diabetes to run in the family, and prediabetes was a risk factor. exactly right. You tend to have the same risk factors. You eat the same uh, foods, you tend to have the same body habitus, so it does put you at extra risk for having prediabetes. So I have to ask uh, both of you to weigh in on this. You know, a lot of people would say, well, eating low carb or at least lower carb would be healthier uh, when it comes to prediabetes. Is that true? That's true. 
that's absolutely right. In fact, um, modest changes in your diet, moving more, as Dr. Harmon mentioned, really helps you to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. But first, you, you just want to know your risk. And taking that simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org is really important as, as a first step. Uh, but to your point, research does show that once people are made aware of their condition, they're more likely to make the necessary long-term lifestyle changes, such as eating healthier, managing their weight, and being active. And these things, of course, help prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Dr. Harmon, uh, your thoughts on lower-carb eating? I agree with Dr. Holliday. That, that dietary modification, such as lower carb, puts less stress on your system that helps you to, that would cause you to lean towards prediabetes and possibly go to type 2 diabetes. I'd also tell you all these recommendations that you're hearing to reduce your risk factors are great health habits to have anyway for other more serious diseases such as cardiovascular disease and other related diseases. This is a great opportunity to reverse prediabetes and to prevent the onset of more serious disease that can lead to heart attack and stroke and other risk factors. You know, some of the health foundations and think tanks, uh, public policy think tanks, have have come out with their annual obesity reports and say that obesity is on the rise during the pandemic. You know, people were stuck at home. They maybe did less exercise, stressed out and ate more. And that's also a big factor, obesity with COVID. So it seems like it would be a good time for people to become much more mindful of their health these days. Dave, I'll tell you, as a David, as a frontline healthcare worker, seeing COVID patients, risk factors are exactly as you described. Diabetes is one of the most serious risk factors for having a bad outcome with COVID. And obesity is certainly a contributory risk factor as well. So uh, I think you'll find that uh, that's uh, validated from the CDC, and I'll, I'll ask uh, Dr. Holliday to comment also. But absolutely, this, is, this has been uh, evidence during our COVID pandemic all, all too unfortunate. Yeah, and I'll just add to to Dr. Harmon's good point that, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic really has underscored the dangers of having chronic health conditions like type 2 diabetes. And so these new PSAs really take a serious look at prediabetes and encourage people to take action. As we know, those with comorbidities like type 2 diabetes and hypertension and and other chronic illnesses really have poor outcomes due to COVID-19 disease, including hospitalization, uh, ventilation, use, and even death. Talking with Dr. Christopher Holliday, Director, CDC's Division of Diabetes Translation, and Dr. Gerald Harmon, President of the American Medical Association. Dr. Holliday, this uh, website you mentioned, doihaveprediabetes.org, I know there's also a quick quiz on there to determine your risk factors. What else is on there? Yes, it's a a simple one-minute risk test that anyone can take by going to the website you mentioned, doihaveprediabetes.org, and it, it asks simple things like family history, whether you have other health issues like hypertension, your age, and others that will give you an idea of whether you're at risk or not. And if you find out by your simple the score that you receive that you're at risk, then you just talk to your doctor. And prediabetes can be confirmed through a simple blood test. And it helps you to know where you stand and to take action. And Dr. Harmon, anything else you'd like to add? Well, I'd like to add, how again, how important this is and how vital this is for those 88 million Americans that we are nowhere at risk and have prediabetes, 
and those over 80% who don't even know they have it. Once, once you hear that alarm sound, once you hear that warning bell that you have prediabetes, you can make some modifiable lifestyle changes. You can become more active, and you can reverse condition. Again, very little things that I do in medicine can be reversed. This is one of those that we really need to be having a lot of energy towards. So thank you for letting us have there the time with your program today, Dave. Okay, again, it's doihaveprediabetes.org. Uh, Dr. Holliday and Dr. Harmon, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.